0: Our scripture today comes from First Thessalonians chapter three, verses six to fifteen. It says, "But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you have always had pleasant memories of us, and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith." For now we really live. For all and sorry, for now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God and because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly, that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for, for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. Amen. When I first read this passage, what struck me was just how emotional Paul was here. As we talked about the past couple of weeks, Paul really considered the Thessalonian church to be his family, just like all of us are family in Christ. But honestly, I love my family, but I wish I could write something this emotional, even about my own biological family. Paul is filled with love and longing to see the church that he has founded. At the end of chapter two, he says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. He wanted to see this church so badly that he curses Satan himself for keeping him away from them. And that was the only thing that could keep him. They are his cause of boasting in the presence of God. The Thessalonian church is what he's most proud of. As we've seen the last couple of weeks, the church in Thessalonica Thessalonica, faced a lot of persecution because the people around them thought the church was, was turning the world upside down. The Christians were encouraging people to give up worshiping their ancestral gods and instead worship a guy who died on the cross and faced the greatest shame in all of Roman society. It was understandable that people made Christians outcasts because their ideas sounded so dangerous. Christians didn't go to watch the gladiators, they didn't go to the theater, and they didn't eat at banquets where there were sacrifices to idols. And they had this particular love for slaves and the lower classes of people. It all made them a great group to blame whenever anything went wrong in society. Paul had already gotten a taste of the persecution when he was kicked out of the city by a giant riot in Thessalonica and had to hide until he could sneak away at night. So what you hear in Paul's voice in this passage is this incredible relief. He was so afraid that persecution would get to them, like it had almost gotten to him, and that the Christians in Thessalonica would give up and curse Christ. But instead, he hears that they have stood firm even through the persecution. Paul compares himself to a whole number of family members in chapter 2, calling himself the Thessalonians brother and father and even mother. And the sense of relief at the good news that they have made it through this hard time in their faith sounds like the relief of a parent. The New Testament uses the word gospel to describe the whole story about how Jesus died for our sins and saved us, and then rose again as king of the world, victorious over death and sin. And the word gospel was this very specific Greek word called euangelion. In ancient Rome, they fought a lot of battles really far away from home because they had a really huge empire. And so when a really important battle was won, they would send home a messenger to bring the good news or gospel or euangelion. It normally involved some specific words like, we have prevailed or salvation has come to us. So the early Christians took that word and applied it to their situation. Christ has won the decisive battle against evil, sin, and death in him we have prevailed and salvation has come to us the earliest christians saw themselves as the messengers that come to every city to tell them that good news the euangelion that anyone can be saved from the oppression of what is evil in the world paul uses this euangelion word exactly like this the rest of the new testament does like the rest of the new testament does in this book six times between chapters 1 and 2 Talking about how Jesus saved the Thessalonians from slavery to idols and won the decisive battle to free them from sin. But in our passage, in our first verse, he uses that same word euangelion to refer to the good news that the Thessalonians have persisted in their faith and haven't fallen away. He uses the same word to refer to the fact that that the persecution against the Thessalonians hasn't worked, as the word he uses for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection which itself is the same word that is used for general winning a decisive battle. And as melodramatic as it sounds, it really makes sense in the context of this letter. In chapter 1, Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. He consistently calls it the gospel of God in this book more than any other. So it's Paul's real conviction, that the way the Thessalonians were genuinely saved was by God, and that it could only be God himself who keeps them from falling away. How else could he explain it? The Thessalonians hadn't seen Jesus themselves. They didn't even have Paul there to encourage them. They were left all alone with no apostles to instruct them, and no way even to communicate with other Christians in the world. The church community in Thessalonica had to have felt all alone. Without anyone to help them. And somehow they continued to believe even if people tried to beat it out of them. Paul was so afraid for them, not so much like you're afraid that your friend will move away, but like a mother fears for her child's life, just an all consuming worry. He feared the worst, but got the amazing news that not only was the church okay, but it was growing and serving as an example to all the churches in the area. In verse 8, Paul says, for now, we really live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. And again, it sounds kind of melodramatic. We really live now that we have heard that the church in Thessalonica is still alive. Really, Paul, you didn't live before that? But I think many of us have experienced something really like that. When you're anxious about something, it feels as if you aren't really living your life until you find out what happens. During a really busy time, you often see one specific day as the end of all your busyness. And when that day passes, you think, wow, now I can really live. In college, there was one 48-hour period where I had to write almost all of, like, three research papers. And I remember thinking, I'll feel so much more alive once they're done and I see that I've passed. When you care about someone a lot, hearing that they're in danger or that they're suffering might just feel like you're not truly living until you find out that they're safe. Mothers, maybe more than anyone else, can probably relate to that same feeling. Probably, Paul probably felt helpless with worry. He couldn't do anything to save the Thessalonian church from the pain they were experiencing. It was all up to God. And so I think that Paul, throughout the book, references how God has preserved the church because it's a lesson that even Paul had to have learned himself here. Paul is the kind of person that does so much and works so hard And when you're that kind of person, it's easy to think that the whole world would fall apart without you. But miracle of miracles, Paul wasn't there to babysit the Thessalonian church, and God preserved them anyway. And so the news that God has prevailed in Thessalonica is just like the good news of the gospel, the evangelion, that says that God has won, and he's brought salvation to the church and to the city. In the church, God has prevailed against evil and hell every second of every day. Because every second that we remain in the faith is a miracle and an act of God. Because of course it is. We have a damaged human nature, the kind that led us to crucify the true son of God and the source of all goodness in this world, which does all it can do to deny goodness, truth, and beauty. And there are hundreds of forces of evil, human or otherwise, that tempt us away from what is good for us and towards what's destructive. The fact that Christians remain in the faith at all, let alone during times of trials, is entirely because God is at work with us in the Holy Spirit, preserving us from falling away. We are totally dependent on God's grace every second, not just when we first come to faith. We know that's true, but you never really know know whether something is really real unless you come to really depend on it. You can think that you've raised a kid right, but until they go off to the real world and you can't control them, you're not really sure. Paul might have thought in his head that it was up to God to keep the Thessalonians in the faith and not him. But until they were left alone with God, he could have never known. What better proof that God is really at work in the church than that people are keeping their faith even when they need to suffer for it? The church staying alive through persecution is like a sermon of the gospel to Paul. He might have thought in the back of his head that all this wasn't really real, that he had tricked himself because he faces all this pushback for his message. He's the only one, right? But if the Thessalonian church miraculously makes it through all kinds of difficulties by nothing but the grace of God, then the gospel really is real. So what that means is that the church can go on even without Paul, It's bigger than him. And if that's true, then for Paul, it's certainly true for us individually. It's not kept alive through the huge efforts of any one of us, but it's totally dependent on God for survival. Our church is a family instituted by God. It's not kept together by the pastors or the deacons or the leadership team or any of us. It's kept together by God himself. Something much bigger than each of us is going on here. And it's not up to any of us to keep it alive, no matter how busy we make ourselves. And if this is a family instituted and preserved by God, then the church is a family that can tie us together even more than a biological family does. Because whatever it looks like, the church as the family of God is eternal and it can never pass away. Even our biological family ties will fall away eventually but our ties to our church family are kept alive because we will be kept alive when we are resurrected to God's new life. That's why Paul's emotion drips off the page in this chapter. He's filled with such strong family affection for the church which began at his preaching, just like a mother has affection for her children. Paul seems to love the people in this church even more than the people in the church love themselves and his heart is all the way in it to the extent that it causes him distress when he isn't able to come see them. And we can have that exact same experience together because God has knit us all together in the love of his own family. He has made us all one because he's united us all to Christ and us to one another. A Christian with a genuine church community lives many more lifetimes, even in this life, than a normal person. Does we experience all the highs and lows of each other's lives as we suffer and cry and feel relief and joy with one another? I remember when I first decided that I wanted to get baptized. I was in the sixth grade. And I told my parents, that I want, that, and they wanted to make sure that I was serious about it. So they asked me a bunch of questions, and we felt like God was, had led me to be baptized. One time in church, my parents told me, hey, you should go tell, tell Kevin, who was my youth pastor at the time, that you want to be baptized. I was a little nervous, and I really didn't know what to expect. On the one hand, it was kind of a big deal, and it would make sense for him to do something similar to what my parents did and drill down to make sure I was really serious about it. On the other hand, I could have totally imagined he would say say something like, this kid's in sixth grade, and this isn't something that really should be taken seriously. So I I went up to him and I said, I think I want to be baptized really sheepishly. And what happened was just this huge explosion of emotion. He smiled real wide and he picked me up and he swung me around while laughing. Sorry, Leland, I don't think I could have done that. <laughs> he was just so happy. And honestly, I think he was way happier for me than I was for myself. He thought it was just the best news he could have ever possibly heard. While I had no idea that someone could be that happy for news about something happening to someone else. I mean, it's just me. Why did it all worked up about it? I honestly think, that my parents and my youth pastor loved me even more than I loved myself. Their emotions were even more wrapped up in my well-being than mine were. Like, I thought baptism was a big deal, but it was even more important to them than it was to me. Maybe it's because it's Mother's Day, but I've been thinking that Paul in this passage is a lot like a mother. In fact, we've seen Paul already compare himself to a mother in 2 verse 7, chapter 2 verse 7. Really good mothers have this amazing thing about them where they seem to love their children far more than they love themselves, and even more than their children love themselves. Mothers love for their children long before their children can even conceive of the idea of themselves. It's honestly incredible. Mothers seem to live far more intense lives than the rest of us because their children just amplify every emotion. I can be happy when something good happens to me, but you can bet that my mom is even happier than I am. I can be sad when something bad happens, but I almost think that my mom is sadder. But what Paul is demonstrating for us is that this natural love that a good mother has for her children can begin to be emulated by the love of each of us for each other in the church. And this isn't a natural, physical love, because how could it be? How could Paul love this church? that he met with a couple days before he was violently thrown out by the authorities. How could sinners like us come to love random people we meet at the church? No, it's a love that comes directly from the Holy Spirit, the God who is love himself, who, like a mother, loved the world so much that he felt the pain and suffering of this world on the cross even more than we ever have or ever could. God said to his people in Isaiah, could a mother forget the nursing child at her breast? Even if she would forget, I would never forget you. That very love of God, which is greater than the best of mothers, is what binds us together as Christians. And we have the opportunity as a church to participate in that love. I like math. And one mathematical thing that I've realized from this passage is that it's inevitable that if you're in a genuine church family, that you will have a number of people who love you more than you love yourself. Because God calls us to love one another and put each other's interests before our own. So a corollary of that, (laughs) what that means is that you necessarily have a ton of people looking out for you more than you look out for you. There's a ton of people even more invested in your well-being than you are. This is a wonderful thing in a time when people are lonely and think life is meaningless and, not, and have a hard time caring. You rarely see mothers that think life is meaningless and have a hard time caring. And that's because they're so consumed by a need to care for their children. It gives them purpose. But the love that God has given us in Christ and in the Holy Spirit empowers us to care for one another. We've all become brothers and sisters. We have a community to care for, a God to serve, and a world to help set right. How could life be meaningless for us? So, Christianity is not a single player game. It's not something we can really do alone. We have to be plugged into a community of believers because it can be very difficult to experience the love of God otherwise. So, as we continue on our Christian journey, make an effort to join with one another and you'll find plenty of people will be more invested with your walk in Christ than you are. And you'll never walk alone. Let's pray. God of love, we pray that you'd make your own love real to us and that you would would inspire us to love one another more than we love ourselves, and that we would find others in the church who love us more than we love ourselves. In your name we pray, amen.